You guys doing okay? Yeah? Are we surviving here at the end of September? Yeah? The semester is far from over, but we're, we're getting into it, y'all. And so before you know it, it's going to be Thanksgiving and then Christmas, and some of you are like, I'm ready for it. Some of you are like, I'm not ready for it. So, but uh, really glad you guys are here tonight at Discovery. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to start verse 25 tonight, and if you um, would prefer a paper copy of a Bible, we have some in the windowsills. You can grab one of those if you would rather not use a device. I totally can relate to that. And that translation is the same one I'm going to use tonight as well. And so we'll be tracking together uh, with that. But uh, one of our journey group leaders up here mentioned we're going through parables in Luke. They're in our small groups this semester. And to kind of tag along with that, we're doing parables here at Discovery uh, this semester as well. And between those two things, Discovery and upperclassmen groups, we'll look at the majority of the parables uh, in uh, in the, the book of Luke, and tonight, like we've heard multiple times already, we're in the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, tonight. But just kind of remind you, if you weren't with us last discovery, we hear the word parable. If you've been in church some, you've heard that word probably before, but it's not a word we use a lot outside of church in the Bible. Uh, but the word parable uh, comes from the Greek word parabole, that means to lay side by side, but for you it may be more relatable to think of the Latin word parabola. Uh, from math class. Uh, math teacher me can relate to that when I used to teach math back in the day. But parabola is what? Like a U-shape? It's mirrored on both sides? So a parable is a story that mirrors a deeper truth. So when Jesus tells these stories, he's giving a story that has a mirror, not maybe one for one with everything in the story meaning something, but the, as a deeper meaning, a mirrored meaning that we can look at in the story. And that definitely is the case in the parable of the Good Samaritan as well. And so tonight, we're going to look at uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37 uh, with this parable and the story, and uh, we'll hop into it from there. So what I want to do is read uh, these verses for us, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin to walk through this and talk, uh, talk more about it. Okay? Sound like a plan? If not, hey, I'm the one with the microphone, so sorry. Okay, so, <laughs> all right. But let's read Luke 10, 25, okay? It says this, uh, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered. And then the expert in the law answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. If you underline your Bible, it's a great word to underline, not the ones in the windowsills, but the other ones, compassion, great underlying word. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these... Three, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Is what Jesus asked. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. 
Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story and how much power it has and how easily we, uh, we maybe gloss over it because we've probably heard it many times. But Father, I pray tonight that you would um, open our hearts to see uh, the power of this story, both in illustrating what it means to love our neighbor, but even the, the power that it shows of the change the gospel can make in someone's life and how only through the power of the gospel can we ever begin to live out uh, the principles we see taught in your word tonight. So I pray you just make our hearts good soil. Pray for these students. Give them attentive minds uh, for the next few moments that we can learn from you together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I started at the University of Alabama in 2005, which is when many of you were born, so I'm old. But back in the fall of 05, my first discovery I ever came to in this room, the campus minister at that time was a guy named Matt, and he preached on the Good Samaritan uh, that night. So this in some ways feels like a weird full circle in my life <laughs> to do this. But that also was right when Hurricane Katrina had happened. My first semester right in August, Katrina came through and demolished New Orleans and that night we came here, and he preached on the Good Samaritan. And at the end, he says, all right, guys, now we're going to go down to the rec center, because the rec center at that time was a refugee-like uh, facility for people fleeing Katrina and the damage. They came, and they lived in the rec center for a while and slept on cots while they were um, figuring out where to go. He said, okay, now we're going to go, and we're going to hand out Popeyes to everybody at the rec center. I'm like, chicken? Like Popeyes? Really, they were handing out pop ice to the people at the rec center. And I was real confused for a minute while we were handing out chicken, but it was popsicles. It made way more sense um, than, than Popeyes. But a lot of times when we think of the story with the Good Samaritan, we think of, of that kind of thing, right? We're showing mercy to someone who's in need, like someone who's lost their home in a hurricane, right? In a flood, and we're going we're gonna to show compassion and mercy to them by meeting a need. And even in our culture, right, the Good Samaritan has become this term that we hear. And maybe you've had like a Good Samaritan moment before. Maybe you were broken down on the side of the road. Someone, some random stranger pulls over, helps you change your tire, sends you on your way, something like that. Like we've, we kind of got that image in our culture of Good Samaritan. Here in town, we have a Good Samaritan clinic that actually serves people who have no health insurance, provides them medical care. And that's a great fulfillment of the heart of the Good Samaritan. But the problem, like I even mentioned in my prayer, is that we, we've heard this story so many times that we easily kind of gloss over it. And we think, okay, this this is the story that Jesus tells to tell me I should help people in need. Like if someone's on the side of the road or I know someone's in need, I, I should help them. And that's not wrong, but there is so much more, I think, for us uh, in this story that we're going to look at tonight because the more familiar a story is in the Bible, oftentimes the more it gets misunderstood or, or um, not applied in the full way that Jesus would like us to. And the best way we can understand really the depths of this story is by looking at the context and what's going on not only in the story itself, but in the wider story of what Jesus is doing in that moment who he's talking to. And so what I want us to do uh, in the first bit before we dive into the parable is look at this conversation that we see Jesus having with this expert of the law, or some translations say lawyer. And with that, I think we're going to understand a lot more about what's going on in this story. So obviously, first off, this guy in the story we see called a lawyer or an expert in the law. He's not an attorney, right? He's an expert not in the you know, judicial law, but in the Old Testament law. He, they were often called lawyers at that time. And he was one of the many religious leaders at the time uh, in Jerusalem, in that area, that often was trying to challenge Jesus and to maybe try to expose him as a false teacher. Because Jesus came in and began to teach in a way that very much upended the way that many of the religious teachers of the time were explaining what it means to relate to God. 
And Jesus taught in a different way that in many ways kind of pushed back against what they were teaching. And because of that, they didn't like him and were trying to all the time expose him for being a false teacher. And this is one of those examples. But the main reason for that is this, is that the religious leaders, and we'll see this in the story, they viewed God as much more of a system than a person. And we can struggle with this today too. But they viewed God as a system that if I put in my obedience and do the right things and check all the boxes and follow the right rules and regulations, then God will love me. God will be proud of me. I'll get to go to heaven when I die, or as they say, inherit eternal life. All right, if I do all these right things and put my obedience into the, you know, like Coke machine of God, right, to insert my obedience and I get what I want. But Jesus comes in and teaching in the true accordance with the Old Testament and all of God's revelation comes and says, no, like, yes, God wants you to obey him, but not with just rules and regulations, but obey him as a person in relationship. That God is not just this system to follow and these rules to follow, but he's a person that we relate to. And that means that it's not just the rules and external stuff, it's even your heart. It's a lot more than just, okay, I do the right things externally and look the right part and like I don't kill people, I don't sleep around, like I don't, you know, steal, but it's even your heart and the, the thoughts of your heart and your mind and the things that you think about even no one even knows what you're thinking about. Those kind of things, those thoughts and motives are even aspects of sin that God is, is concerned about, right? So it's way more than just the external rules, but the internal relationship as well. So Jesus comes and teaches that. The religious leaders don't like that because he's beginning to challenge them. He's gaining more notoriety so they do all these things like we see in this story, trying to uh, out him in some kind of way. But the interesting, interesting thing about this story is that oftentimes Jesus kind of just straight up calls them out for their false teaching. But in this, Jesus kind of commends the guy for saying some true things. Like if you look at the question that the lawyer asks, he says this, he says, teacher, like what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a really good question. Like, you, I hope, have at least answered that question or asked that question to yourself in some way. Maybe not in those exact words, but for all of history, many people have asked, like, oh, if there is a God, how can I be in right relationship with him? If there is a heaven, how can I know that I'm going there? If there is some kind of separation that I have to breach to get back to this God and fix things, like, what do I got to do to do that? And that's really, in many ways, what this lawyer is asking. And we all have asked that question, hopefully, and wrestled with some kind of answer. But Jesus' response is also really interesting because, and I love this about Jesus, he oftentimes will answer a question with a question. You ever notice that about Jesus? Someone will ask him a question and instead of giving like a direct answer, he'll ask a question back in return. I, I read a great book called Questioning Evangelism a couple of years ago by a guy who mentioned how all the time this happens in Jesus' ministry and that there's a lot of power in, in questions. But, but Jesus basically asked back to this guy, he says, okay, so you asked what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what do you interpret the law to say is the answer? Is basically what he says. Like, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer quotes the Bible basically back to Jesus, which is always a good thing, and says, to summarize, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which is in many ways straight quotes from the Old Testament that Jesus even affirms in Matthew 22 as being the right answer. Like if you're going to summarize all of the law of what God wants us to do and to obey him, you can summarize it pretty easily with love God and love people, love others. Here at BCM, our mission statement is love God, love each other, and love campus. We just took the campus part and kind of since we're a campus ministry, focused the third part. But the love God and love each other, that's straight from the Bible. And Jesus affirms that in Matthew 22. And so Jesus says, hey, yeah, like you're right good job. But the next thing he says is where things begin, 
begin to get interesting because what he says is, yes, you're exactly right. But then he says, do this and you will live. Like, do that. Love God with your everything. Love your neighbor the same way you love yourself and you'll live. And that answer is, is both good and bad news for us. Because the, the good news side of it is this, is that the Bible is really clear on what God expects from us in life, right? Like, you don't really have to wonder, like, what does God really want from me in this life? Like, if you wonder what God's will for you is, big sense, here it is, right? It's to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, the Bible makes it really clear for us what God expects from us. Now, the, the, the filling in some of the stuff between that is where things get complicated. But overall, love God and love people. That's what God expects from us in life. But the bad news with that is this. It's this question. Is that how can you really know and be sure that you're loving God with all your heart? Are you loving God with all your heart? How can you know you're loving God with all your, your mind, with all your soul, with all of your strength? Like, who can really say, like, yeah, I love God with everything, right? Because if, if we are honest about that, if that's the thing, the standard for us to be able to inherit, to inherit eternal life, that's a very high standard for us to meet. And just consider that, that first one, your whole heart. Can you say that you love God with every bit of your heart? Like, if I'm honest, I don't on my own. Like, my heart is this jumbled knot of good desires and bad desires, of me loving things more than I should that are not God, that's called idolatry, right? Of me definitely loving God. I love God with a lot of my heart. <laughs> but can I say I love God with everything of my heart, all of my heart? Can I say I love God with all of my mind? Is it, does everything in my mind always honor and glorify God? Is every bit of my energy and strength, is, is it always used in a way to honor God and to love him? Can you say that about yourself? I think if you're honest, maybe laying in your bed at night, reflecting on the day, you're going to say No. I have not loved God with all my heart today, with all my mind, with all my strength, all right, with, with my everything. Because if we're honest, like we're all guilty of that. And that's the one standard, really one of two, but the main one that we're held to, to inherit eternal life, to be in right relationship with God. And that's just the first part, right? Take the second part. Sometimes it gets more tangible here, right? Love our neighbor as ourself. As we're going to see Jesus define neighbor in a second, it's a very difficult standard. But even just the people around you, like your roommates, have you loved your roommates as yourself even the past month? <laughs> have you loved them the way that you love you? Because many of us love ourselves pretty well. We may struggle with loving ourselves in the right way sometimes, but we tend to be decently kind to ourselves. Have you been loving to your roommates even the way you've been loving to yourself? To your family, right? to your siblings, to people in your class? Have you loved your neighbor in the way that you loved yourself? I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I have not. I have not loved my wife as myself, right? I'm self-centered often, right? So if we're honest with this, we fail in both accounts, right? That we have not loved God with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor uh, uh, as ourselves. We have not showed concern uh, for people the way we show concern for ourselves. We may have our good moments, right? But we all have this propensity to be self-centered and to focus on our own desires more than other people often. And so with that in mind and with that honesty that we can all hopefully have, like the lawyer's response should have been something along the lines of, well, Jesus, like, I don't, I don't do that. Like, what do I do? If that's the standard to inherit eternal life, to actually do that and love God with all my heart, my soul, strength, and love my neighbor as myself, like, there's no way I can do that. Like, then what do I do? And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus wanted him to say 
in some version of that, is to respond with Jesus like, I don't, if that's the standard, I messed up. Like, I need help. <laughs> but instead, what does he say? What does he ask? He says, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And it says right there that he is trying to justify himself, right? He's trying to say, well, you know, Jesus, like, I see this, this bar up here, but like, can I just lower the bar a little bit, right, so that I can maybe say that I'm good enough to, to clear this thing, right? He understands how high the bar has been set, but instead of looking to Christ, he tries to pull that bar down a little bit to make it maybe a little bit more um, accessible, to maybe if I can get Jesus to agree at least on the terms of who my neighbor is, I can maybe try to achieve this standard in some kind of way. But then what Jesus does in the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is take that bar that the Say the bar is 50 feet high and the Samaritan's, or the, um, the lawyer, not Samaritan, sorry, the lawyer's trying to bring it down to maybe 15 feet. Jesus grabs the bar and chunks it into the clouds. That's <laughs> what he does in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He raises the bar even, uh, even higher in this story that we see. So now let's look at this story and see exactly what uh, Jesus is trying to show us. The story goes that you probably know it, right? But there's this man that's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he's attacked by robbers, and they steal everything from him, even the clothes on his back, and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. And Jesus probably just made this story up as a parable to illustrate his point, but it's also very realistic because this kind of thing happened all the time. Like people were robbed and beaten on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when it says go down, it literally means down. Like the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 33, sorry, 17 miles long, and it descended about 3,300 feet in that 17 miles. So it was pretty steep going down. But it also weaved through a lot of cliffs and mountains to where it was really easy for robbers to hide in those cliffs. And it got so bad to where people were robbed and murdered so often that the people called this road the way of blood. Right? That's a major marketing problem for your road if it's called the way of blood. Right? But the way of blood was what many of the Jews called this this road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so this man is robbed and he's left for dead. And then the story goes that a priest comes by and, and sees him. And the priests, if you don't know much about them, they worked in the temple at that time in Jerusalem, offering sacrifices for a period of the year. But many of them lived in Jericho. Jericho was not too far. So they would work in Jerusalem and they would live in Jericho. And they would take shifts, oftentimes like a month at a time, working in the temple, and they'd go home to their families back in Jericho, and then when their time would come to work in the temple again, they would go back, back to Jerusalem. So this priest is, if he's going down, he's on his way back home from work. He's been away from his family for like a month. He's ready to get home, and he's on his way down this hill, and he sees this man on the side of the road. And one of the things about the road there is it got so narrow sometimes that oftentimes people said certain parts of it were just like one person width, like only one person could walk the width of that road, it was so narrow. You had to walk in like a single file line to get down it. So as this priest walks by the, the man who's been wounded, like he very well is like almost walking over him in, basically to get past this man that's been wounded. He's right there beside him at least. So he ha it's not like he's over in the ditch, you can't see him, but no, he's right there and he sees this man in need. And no doubt the audience would expect the priest of all people, right, to stop. He's a person that works in the ministry, Right? Like I worked as a pastor at a church for a while and it was always kind of assumed when everyone ever kind of came by to the church asking for something that well, at least the pastor is going to give me something, all right? The pastor, they're nice people. They're going to help me out, right? Because that's what pastors do. And that's what they would assume in this case is the priest at least would stop and help. 
But what's shocking is he doesn't. For whatever reason, keeps on going. And the same thing happens with the Levite. A Levite was someone who assisted the priests in the temple. He also walks right by the dying man, doesn't help him. And that's pretty tragic, considering the fact that these guys literally just got done working in the temple. Like, offering sacrifices to God, worshiping God, like all these reminders of who God is. But yet, when they see someone in need, they walk right by. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this, said this about these men. He said, they had been near to God, but were not like him. Ouch. They had been near to God, but not like him. All this time in the temple. There's probably a sermon in that statement right there that I won't get into tonight. (laughs) But right there, that's, that's hard. So by this point in the story, though, like the audience then expects there to be one more person to come by. Like sets of three were common in Jewish culture. So the audience expects there to be somebody else that comes down the road, but it ends up not being who they think it is. Because uh, Jewish people at that time often thought of their society in terms of three groups. You had the priests, the Levites, and everybody else, all the other Jewish people, just the people. And so they probably thought that the next person coming down would be like an ordinary Joe Schmo Jew, and the whole point of the parable would be, oh yeah, like everybody can make a difference, right? Not just the religious leaders, but even Joe Schmo, because the priest and Levite were probably busy, and this guy, he helps out. And you know, I don't know what Joe Schmo would be in Hebrew, but you know, you can think of the Hebrew name for it. And they thought it would be some just average guy, right? That's not who it is. Instead, it's a who? Samaritan. A Samaritan that stops and helps this guy. And you're probably familiar with the fact that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. That's pretty well known these days. The reason for that is because the Samaritans, they were descendants of the northern tribes of Israel. And those tribes, centuries before, had intermarried with non-Jews uh, especially when Assyria came over and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the Jews that lived in the southern tribes of Israel, they considered themselves like the pure-blooded Jews and the true Jews, and they looked at the, at the Samaritans as like half-breeds. They compromised, right? So if you're a Harry Potter fan, they were like the mudbloods, right, is what the, the Samaritans were. They were the mixed people, right? And so the true Jews looked down on the Samaritans and said, no, you guys have compromised. We... we don't like you because of that. And because of that, over time, more animosity goes back and forth. They hated each other. They would kill each other. There were wars and all kinds of, not wars, but battles, tragedies that happened on both sides between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so if a Samaritan's going to be in this story, the audience would more likely expect the Samaritan to come by, grab a knife and stab the half-dead guy and go ahead and kill him in the ditch more than help him get out of the ditch and to save him. They, They would think that about Samaritans. They were that ruthless, right? So for him to be the one that helps is shocking for them. But notice, like, I told you to underline this word, like, what does Jesus say the Samaritan feels for the man? Like, what word does it say he felt for him? Compassion, right? That word in the Greek is, I love this word, it's so funny sounding, splagizomai. I can't even get the G right. It's kind of like splagizomai. It's kind of weird to say. But that word literally means like a a yearning in your bowels, like your gut, you didn't think you'd hear bowels from the stage tonight, okay? But yeah, like, because oftentimes the Jews, they would think of like your gut like your heart in the way we think of heart, and they would think of your mind uh, to be, uh, sorry, I got that backwards. But the point is that they think your gut would be more your emotions, right? So to say that you had a yearning in your bowels would be like you are brokenhearted over this situation, this person. It, you are like literally sick to your stomach, right, because of the situation this person is in. When it says that Jesus had compassion, on people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He felt splagizomai. His gut yearned like he was sick to his stomach over the lostness of those he saw around him. And so 
Compassion then is this deep yearning in your, in your gut, brokenheartedness. But as we see here, that kind of compassion always leads to action. It always leads to action. It's going to bother me. I'm going to turn that on so it doesn't buzz. So compassion always leads to action. So the Samaritan then takes action. He, he takes the man. He binds up his wounds. He pours on olive oil, which would have been to clean the wounds at the time. He pours, over, he pours wine on him, which would be a disinfectant. Right? The alcohol in the wine would disinfect the wounds. And then he puts them on his own animal, probably a donkey, and carries them to an inn to take care of him for the night. Next day, he pays two denarii, which have been probably 300-ish dollars in U.S. currency today, pays that to the innkeeper and says, hey, take care of him until I come back, and then I'll pay you what I owe you later. I'll give you an IOU in that. And then he's on his way. And so basically in this story, what happens is this, is that the Samaritan goes so far above and beyond what anyone could imagine he would do to care for this man. And he does this not just for a fellow Jew, or for his case, a fellow Samaritan, but he does it for somebody who is supposed to be his enemy. Someone that very well may have spat in his face if he were conscious enough to know what was happening. They were that big of enemies. But yet the Samaritan loves and serves his enemy. And so then Jesus asked the lawyer after telling the story, he says, okay, which man proved to be a neighbor to the one in need? And you can see just the animosity between Jews and Samaritans and how the lawyer answers. What does the lawyer say? Does he say the Samaritan? No, what does he say? He says, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan to Jesus. He's so shocked and frustrated at this story, right? He just says the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus, I can only imagine, with like a smirk on his face, but the most serious look in his eye, looks straight at the lawyer and says, all right, go and do likewise. You go and do the same. Like, Jesus is a boss. I'm just saying, like, amazing. I love the way Jesus interacted with people like this. But like, he says, Jesus, go and do likewise. And you know that, that this lawyer, like Walter Ray, like, what do I do with this? We can hope that he became a Christian and put his faith in Christ. But like, for us, what can we maybe learn from, from this story well, really, two main things. The first we'll look at is this. Is Jesus is showing us what it truly means, to, truly means to love and serve other people. What it really means to love um, our neighbor. Because neighbor at that time for a Jew would have meant my fellow Jew, right? They had taken the circle of what it means to be a neighbor and really in much of rabbinical teaching at that time said, yeah, your neighbor, according to Leviticus, which they, this is their interpretation, it's not what Leviticus really said, but they say, yeah, your neighbor is just other Jews, right? The, Samar- the uh, Samaritans, no, they're not your neighbor. The Gentiles, definitely not your neighbor, right? But your, your fellow Jew, that's your neighbor. And so that's who you are obligated to serve and love. Everybody else, nah, you're good, right? And that's the way they had to find neighbor. But Jesus completely redefines that and tells us that the question is not, hey, who is my neighbor? But instead, the question is, how am I being a neighbor to those around me? Like, not is, it's not, who do I get to pick and choose that I want to love and serve and be concerned about? But no, like, how can I be a neighbor to everyone around me that God has placed in my life? It completely switches the paradigm in a, in a major way. Because the lawyer, he was trying to draw a circle around the people he had to love and serve, but Jesus draws a much bigger circle about who he's called to love and serve. He says that our neighbor is not just the person that looks like me, that talks like me, that lives mostly like me, that agrees with my politics, right? That I can easily get along with, right? Not someone that, I, that it's, friendship is easy, but no. It's anyone around me that is in need. 
anyone around me. Because Jesus says that our neighbor, even though they may be our enemy, is someone that we're still called to love and to serve. And Jesus shows us just how many, how many lines we have to cross to truly practice loving our neighbor. And I just want to point out a couple of these lines for us to think about how this may apply to us. Okay, The, the, first, the first line is the line of convenience. That we have to cross the line of convenience. That we don't know why the priest and Levite didn't stop. We can speculate. Many have speculated right, on why they didn't stop and help. But we have to imagine that a lot of it had to do with convenience that they were on their way back down from the temple, right? They had already done their work. And so they see this guy on the side of the road. He, he's half dead. They may think he's very well dead or dying. And if they were to have touched a dead body at that point, they would become ceremonially unclean, which meant they would have to basically turn around and go back up to the temple and spend a week up there doing a, a becoming clean again ceremony because they had touched this dead body. So for them, they're like, that's really inconvenient for me to help this guy, right? Because he is either dead or dying and I'm going to become unclean. I don't want to deal with it. Right? It's inconvenient. So it was this inconvenience that kept them from helping him. And so for us, as we think about how this applies to us, like how often is our concern for people limited to what's convenient for us and what fits into our schedule right? and what's easy? How often is it, you know, that person that's easy to get along with that I'll serve and care for and show interest in, but as soon as it's someone that demands a little bit more of my time than I want to give, that takes more of my energy away than I, than I want to give out, like then I'm like, ah, this is too inconvenient, Right? I'm out, I'm done, right? But Jesus is calling us in this to cross these lines of convenience because it's in that way that we sacrifice and give of that that we truly serve and love people. We love the neighbors that we have around us. So we cross this line of convenience. The second one is not just the line of convenience, it's the line of like, like social lines, social lines. The Samaritan, he was willing to serve the Jewish man. We kind of talked about this. He's willing to serve the Jewish man even though they came from these groups that were so against each other. And yet again, for us, this kind of lines up with the first one, but how often is our concern for people limited to those that we easily get along with, that are kind of just in our circle, or people that kind of fit into our social bubble that we agree with on big things like politics, right, and the way we should relate to different issues. But Jesus says, draw a bigger circle, right? Draw a bigger circle. The third one we see is true love of neighbor also crosses even safety lines. Lines of safety. Because when the Samaritans stopped to help the man, here's the thing, he had no idea if those robbers were still in the cliffs. The way the cliffs were lined up, it was very easy for many times for robbers to hide in the cliffs and use someone as bait. They rob somebody, leave them there, hoping that some good Samaritan comes by and they, they jump that guy as well when he comes by. The Samaritan had no idea if they were still in the cliffs. And so the Samaritan, he ends up risking his life in many ways to care for this man. Now, listen to me for a second, okay? This parable, this is not a step-by-step for how to help every person in every situation, right? It's a parable, right? So I, this is not me telling you on your way home tonight in your car, you're by yourself driving home, there's some random person on the side of the road, you pull over and, get, and let them into your car and you take them wherever they want to go, <laughs> all right? It's not me telling you that, okay? Because number one, in 2023, we have things like cell phones and police and lots of other things that help us help people without putting ourselves in unnecessarily dangerous situations where we don't practice wisdom, okay? The parable is not a step-by-step on how to do everything and help people that way, so don't hear me say that. But this parable does show us that there are times, right, where it's the right thing to risk our safety to help someone in need. That's why we have, like, good Samaritans in culture and good Samaritan laws where we see people who have put their lives on the line to help someone else. And we see that in this story, that sometimes that is right 
and justified. But do those things with wisdom, okay? Do it with wisdom. But the next one we see, not just lines of safety, but also even lines of money, like money lines, right? We don't usually pick up on this. We hear in in the Bible when we don't think about, like, we think of like a hotel. But oftentimes in that culture, inns had a very, like, shady reputation for a lot of reasons. But one of them was that innkeepers oftentimes like to take advantage of people with the whole monetary system of like, hey, he'll stay here for a couple of days and I'll pay you back. Like they would oftentimes take advantage of that and try to get more ma- money out of you than, than you said you would pay. So yet again, this parable is not a step-by-step in what we do, okay? We have to exercise wisdom in helping people financially. Oftentimes, given that person that's asking for cash on the street, just handing them cash, that may hurt more than help sometimes, okay? It's not always the case, but sometimes it may hurt more than help. We want to exercise wisdom But there is often sometimes financial sacrifice that comes with us helping someone in need, that we give up in that way. We're we're willing to take that risk. But then another line is the line, and this is the last one, is the line of indifference. That true neighbor love, true love of our neighbor, crosses even lines of indifference. And this, in many ways, may be the hardest one for us. Because the difference between the Samaritan and the other two was mainly that he was moved with compassion for the man, right? That other two were not moved with compassion, but he was moved with compassion for this hurting man. That the Samaritan was not so focused on his own problems and his own world that it kept him from noticing or caring for this dying man on the side of the road. But how often in my life am I so often focused on my own needs and my own issues and my own problems that it keeps us and keeps me from even noticing the issues of those around me? And I'm so focused on myself that I can't even begin to realize the ways that people are hurting around me and, and the difference I can make. And I become indifferent to that. And there's the old quote that I don't know who initially said it, but the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference, right? It's apathy for people. And oftentimes that comes in our lives through us being so just focused on us that we can't even begin to realize the needs uh, around us. And this generation, like just in this world that we live in doesn't help with this in many ways, because we have little glass rectangles in our pockets that are always making us think about, you know, what's going on in our little world and social media and all this kind of stuff. But even outside of that, like, we just live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with information to where it, can, it becomes hard to even have genuine compassion on people. That you can go on your phone right now and within five minutes find like a billion charities to give to, a billion causes you could get behind, a billion needs that you know of. And even on top of that, not only are we more connected, but also there's just way more people who have needs in the world. Did you know that between 1975 and this year, the world has doubled in size? 1975, there were 4 billion people in the world. There's 8 billion people on the planet today. Like, the world is literally twice as big, so we have twice as many problems <laughs> to try to, to deal with. Like, there's just a lot of need and a lot of ways to know about the need. So what do most of us do? We just check out because we're like, I can't make a difference. I'm a broke college student. I can't do anything. I just, I can't help, sorry. And we just check out. We have what many people call compassion fatigue because it's too much need. I, I can't help, I'm sorry. And that, yet again, obviously is not the way that Jesus wants us to live. And even on top of that compassion about general needs, like even talking about the lostness of the world. Like if you're a Christian here, there's lots of ways to even learn more about the way that there are so many people in the, in the world that don't have access to the gospel. And that can become... Yes, a way to pray, but it can become discouraging if you're like, man, what do I do? Like, how do I make a difference in the world? Like, it can be so overwhelming. So here's my advice for you in that. Like, if you feel overwhelmed, like I often do with these things, with all the needs in the world, here's my advice. 
Start with what's in front of you. Like, start with what's in front of you today. There's so many ways that through technology we can be aware of the needs all around the world, even the needs across our country. But I think God, like, God has you here for a reason. You know that? Like, you, you didn't just happen to choose the University of Alabama or Shelton State and, like, you know, God had no idea that was going to happen. Like, God placed you in Tuscaloosa on this campus, in the community that you're in, at the school that you're in, like God placed you here for a reason. And he wants to use you to help meet the needs and care for people and love and serve those around you and the people that you see every day. Like yes, there's a lot more that you can potentially do, but I think the place we begin when it comes to making a difference and loving and serving is people right in front of you. The needs right in front of you that you have each day. Your roommates, right? People in class, the people that serve you lunch at Lakeside the people that you work with or you see on your way to work, like the people in your life day after day, those are the people that I think God has primarily first called you to, to love and serve. Not that they're the only ones, but that's a great place to begin. If we get caught up in all the ways I can serve through like giving some charity across the world, it's going to become really stressful to figure out what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to choose uh, to invest my time and money in. But if I do what's right in front of me, that's a great place to begin. It's a great place to begin. And it just had to be physical needs. It can be emotional needs, social needs. Like maybe you know someone in a class that they have, you just tell they, they don't really have any friends and you want to emulate and like model the love of Christ by befriending them and caring for them in that kind of way. Maybe you know someone that has a physical need that you can help meet that physical need. Maybe it's a spiritual need that you're a Christian, you know someone in your class or a roommate or a friend that doesn't know Christ and you want to meet that need by sharing the gospel with them. But that begins, I think, primarily in the places God has placed us, the people right in front of us, our neighbors in a very literal physical sense. It begins there. And then as you do that, you begin to pray and ask God, okay, God, like, what are the greater ways you want to use me? Like, I I tell students all the time, if you're going to go in the mission field over the summer, like, you got to start living on mission today. Like, no, there's no, like, uh, switch that flips and you get on a plane to go live missionally. Like, if you're not loving and serving your neighbor today here, why do you think you're going to love and serve your neighbor across the, the ocean, right? So we begin by loving and serving our neighbor here and then pray for God to give us wisdom on how to then expand that circle, you know, or expand the ways that we can love and serve people and meet needs around the world, right? We can't do it all, but we can do something, but I think it begins with what's right in front of us. So that's the first thing we see, and the second point, which is way shorter, (laughs) is this, is that um, we see how and what it means to truly love our neighbor. The second is this, is that we also see how truly incapable we are of living up to God's standards on our own. We see how truly incapable we are. That if we just approach this parable like a moral guide to tell us to help people that are in need and how we should treat them, ultimately we're going to be crushed beneath that weight because we're never going to be able to perfectly live out the compassion of the Good Samaritan in every way. That's a burden we're not meant to carry to be perfect in that way. The only way we're going to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves is to first really do that first commandment. To love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's only when we love God and have our lives transformed by the love of God and the gospel that we can understand what it means to love somebody else. That's why 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. That our love for other people is an overflow of our love or the love that God has showed us in the gospel. So if we're not loving God first, we're not going to be able to love people in the way that we're called to love and serve them. So we have to get that in the right order. And that's why I think Jesus shares his story with the lawyer is ultimately he wants him to see it's impossible for him to live up to God's standard on his own. And Jesus wants all of us to see that it's only through his work for us that we can live up to that standard because 
Only Jesus has met that standard for us. That he has come and lived the perfect life in our place that we can be accepted by God, not on our own work, but by, by his work. That think about the Good Samaritan parable that we were dead and cast aside on the side of the road. That we were God's enemies, right? More than just like a ethnic kind of thing with Samaritans and Jews. We were like enemies that have rebelled against God and literally spit in his face. Or not literally, but you know, we had spit in God's face and rebelled against him. And we were his enemies, deserving of his wrath. But yet, instead of allowing us to die dead in the ditch for all of eternity, Jesus comes to us. And doesn't just bandage us and bring us to an end, but instead he literally brings us back to life, from spiritual death to life. And then Jesus himself comes and he is beaten, that he is um, crucified, that he dies, and then he is brought back to life. He's stripped, beaten, and killed for us so that we don't have to take on the punishment we deserve for our sin. And then now if we surrender our life to him, we can, like the lawyer asks here, we can inherit eternal life. That if we surrender our life to him, if we admit our need for him and say, I could never live up to the standard, God, only Christ is in that for me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. If we do that, then we can inherit eternal life. Not because of what we have done, but what Christ has done. And so as we close, I want to invite you to respond in whatever way seems appropriate. There's three ways I'm, I'm thinking of. It's, it's th- first one is this. Maybe you've never responded to God's invitation to come to Christ, to believe in the gospel, to put your faith in Jesus. Like if you've never done that before and you recognize tonight that you can never live up to God's standard but you see Christ did it for you, like I'd love to talk to you as the, the band leads this last song. Kim would love to talk to you. We're going to be in the back during this last song if you want to talk more about what it means to put your faith in Christ and surrender your life to him. But Maybe you're already a Christian, and tonight your challenge may be this, is that you've got to learn to cross some of the lines that we talk tonight when it comes to loving your neighbor. You recognize that I've been letting convenience dictate those that I'm going to care for and love and serve, and I want to cross that line tonight and be done with that. I've been letting, you know, my fear of people and approval be the thing that leads me to not cross that line. Whatever it is, I encourage you to spend some time with the Lord tonight asking him, God, where are you calling me to love people and serve, and what ways maybe I need to to sacrifice in order to do that. Whether it's here, whether it's God calling you to something else, even across the world eventually. But the third thing is this. This may seem random, but um, there may be some people here tonight that even are being called to, to love and serve in a unique way and that you feel like you're being called to serve in ministry leadership. Like maybe in called in some kind of, as we call sometimes, vocational ministry to, to serve in ministry, maybe full-time. We're going to start a dinner next Tuesday night. We do this every year, but we're going to have a dinner next Tuesday night for any student that feels called to ministry and that wants to know more about what it means to serve in ministry leadership. And so if you have any interest in that and you feel like that may be you, you don't have to be committed to going into ministry, but if you have an interest in exploring that, like talk to me or Kim about that and we'll give you information about that dinner next Tuesday. But if that's you tonight, we'd love to talk to you as well. But let me pray for us and the band's going to come back up. And however you feel like you need to respond tonight to God's word, let's do that together. And like I said, me and Kim will be in the back if you need to talk. Okay, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and how it challenges us. We, we admit how we have all fallen short of the standard, that we have not loved you with our whole heart. Uh, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, And we beg you for your mercy because we have failed. But for those of us that are in this room that have put our faith in Christ, we know that we are not evaluated by that standard, but we are evaluated by the perfect standard of Christ, that he, his righteousness, has been given to us. 
that we don't have to be afraid of ever being good enough for you because Christ has been good enough for us. We simply repent. We humbly lay out our lives and ask to use us, to help us be bold in crossing these lines and learn more and more what it means to live out the love modeled in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but to love and serve in that way. So we ask for your mercy and your grace and guidance and wisdom to live this out in the ways you're calling us to. I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that tonight will be the night you draw them to salvation, that you save them, bring them from death to life. We thank you for this time and pray in Christ's name. Amen.